This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, my name is Ron. For those of you who are brand new, for those of you who come here all the time, you're probably tired of hearing me say that. But just in case you forgot from last week, there you go. Um, we are going to have a great time today. It's a big day for our church. For those of you watching online, we're so glad that you have joined. And we're praying that as God is doing work in our lives here, that he will also be doing a work in your life wherever you are and what time of the week you're watching this. You know, if you'll open your heart to God, then he does his work. And every Sunday when we get together, it's our goal, uh, Channing said it so well, it's our goal to open our hearts and give God full access to us. And when we do, he moves us. And he moves all of us a little bit. And one of the things that I've learned about how God works in this church is that every Sunday for a handful of people, it becomes a milestone event that they look back and they realize that from that moment on, they were a fundamentally different person. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's awesome, and only God can do that. A church can't do that for you. God can. And so our job as a church is to hopefully get you next to God so He can work in your life. There it is. Okay. We, the kingdom of Jesus is what we've been talking about. And last week we talked about The kingdom of Jesus is for you. This week we're going to talk about the kingdom of Jesus is actually in you. And if you look at this uh, little folder that you'll find on the chair next to you, it actually says, find your place. I don't want you to necessarily look inside it now, but I want to tell you this. One of the reasons why it's find your place is because if you were to read through all the teachings of Jesus, you would find out that he has a place for you in his kingdom. When he sets the table for all of his kids, there's a place setting with your name on it even if you don't show up. Did you know that? Yeah, because the kingdom of Jesus is actually for everybody. This week, we're going to take a look at the fact that the kingdom of Jesus is actually in you. Now, last week, uh, we noted that there were two great threads that ran all the way through the history of God's interaction with people. And this morning, I'm only going to refer to one, and it's the one you see on the screen right now. It says that that great thread was heaven and earth have one ultimate king, and he's coming. Or if you read in the Bible after Jesus came, he has come. It's big, it's life changing. 
And that king, the ultimate king of heaven and earth came and lived on our planet for about 33 years. He conducted a ministry for a little over three years and he has impacted our world more than any other person who's ever walked the face of our planet in, in the space of three and a half years. There's all sorts of reasons to believe that Jesus was not just an ordinary person. And that's one of them. Ordinary people cannot change in a positive way the history of the world in three years. But Jesus did. Now today, we're going to take that thread that has run all the way through the history of God's interaction with people, and we're going to add something to it, because when Jesus came, he actually added an additional truth. Take a look. While he's here, he came to establish his heavenly, eternal kingdom on earth. Jesus didn't come to be passive. He didn't come to just say, yo, I'm here. He showed up with this mission to establish an everlasting eternal kingdom that eventually would govern both heaven and earth. Now, I don't know if you've ever been given a task at your work that seemed slightly undoable or maybe greatly undoable. Imagine if you sat down with God and God said, if I sat down with God and God said to me, okay, Ron, I'm going to send you to earth and you're, you're going to have a three and a half year ministry. And in that three and a half years, I'm going to expect you to establish an eternal kingdom that will rule heaven and earth. How am I going to do that? I w that wouldn't have a chance to fly. And yet Jesus was very clear about this. Now listen, he wasn't the first one to say this. If we go all the way back about 600 years before Jesus lived on our planet, there was a guy by the name of Daniel who was a prophet of God. And notice what Daniel said during the reigns of those kings. And if you went back and studied this in its context, he specifically says the Roman kings. During the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered, and it will stand how long? Forever. I won't walk you through history, but I can tell you that the followers of Jesus have been often persecuted and killed and thrown to the lions and, and burned at the stake and and. Satan has tried pretty much everything he can to destroy the kingdom of Jesus. And yet, how's it doing? It's the largest enterprise on the face of planet Earth. That's how it's doing. When God sets up a kingdom, no one can stand against it and prosper. Yeah. Now, we fast forward about 600 years and there's a guy who came as the predecessor of Jesus. And if you've been watching The Chosen, they call him John the Baptizer, all right? This is John the Baptizer. I want you to notice how John the Baptizer talked about the kingdom. While Jesus was living in the Galilean hills, 
John called the baptizer was preaching in the desert country of Judea, and his message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is what? Near. That, that's code for is coming soon. Now, all the way from sort of the beginning of the history of people, all the way to John the Baptist, there has been this, this thread that says the ultimate king of heaven and earth is coming to earth. But no one said when. John was the first guy to say the ultimate king of heaven and earth is coming soon. Not a long time away, not centuries away, soon. But John wasn't the only one to say this. Look at how Jesus talked about himself. Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is where? Near. The exact same message. Now, th there's a whole teaching in why he said repent of your sins, and we're not going to get into that today, okay? But the point that we're going to get into is that Jesus and John the baptizer are saying that the kingdom of Jesus is coming soon. And in fact, it would happen in Jesus' lifetime. Now, the teaching of Jesus centered on the kingdom. We know lots of subjects that Jesus taught about, but most of us might be surprised to realize that the subject Jesus talked about more than any other subject was the subject of the kingdom. <coughs> Excuse me. It was the heart of his teaching. And most of us know, and, and even if you don't, I'll tell you right now, that Jesus often talked about the kingdom using stories from everyday life that we tend to call parables. And he would, he would just say, now the kingdom is like this, or the kingdom is like that, or the kingdom is like this. And in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus compares the kingdom that he's establishing to these six things a farmer and different types of soil. He began by saying a farmer went out to sow seed and some of it fell on the path and some of it fell on the rocks and some of it fell among the thorns and some of it fell on the good ground. But it was the parable of a farmer and different types of soil. He compared it to a farmer with weeds in his field. The farmer goes out and plants wheat seed and when the plants start to germinate, and come up, they don't all look like wheat. In fact, some of them look very much like weeds. Yeah. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a tiny seed of mustard. That when you put it in the ground, it's like the smallest of all seeds, and yet it grows into this really large plant. And then he said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast in a lump of dough, probably bread dough. And it starts out as a tiny little piece of leaven, but it actually works its way through the whole lump. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. And then he said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. 
And when, it, when a person discovers it, they go and sell everything they have and they go buy that field because that treasure is worth more than everything else that they own put together. And then he said the kingdom of heaven is like the ultimate pearl where a pearl merchant was, was browsing through pearls one day and he came across this gigantic, flawless pearl and he sold every pearl he had in order to buy that one. Now what I want all of us to see is something that we talk about often in this church and that is, even last week, the kingdom of Jesus is for everyone. And that means the kingdom of Jesus is very diverse, even though it's unified. Now take a look at those six things. <clears throat> Jesus used an illustration, a couple of them, out of agriculture, out of a farmer. And in his culture, that would have been a typical everyday labor, male laborer's domain. So that was out of the common man's life. And then Jesus talked about the power of a tiny mustard seed, and he talked about it being planted in a garden. And in Jesus' day, the garden was typically tended to by the wife of the home and the children. A completely different domain. And then he said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast in a lump of dough. That was almost, in Jesus' day, an exclusively female world. Please, do not hear me say, I think that's how it ought to be today, okay? You got that? That's not what I'm saying. But in Jesus' day, that's how it was. And then he goes on to say, it's like a treasure hidden in a field, and a person went and sold everything they had. This is a straight-up business deal. And he was, he was using an illustration out of the business world. And then finally, he says, it's like the ultimate pearl. The only people who dealt in pearls were the most sophisticated people of their culture. So we have everything from a farmer who's throwing seed on a small plot of ground to a sophisticated pearl merchant. And it's all in one chapter in the Bible because Jesus wanted us to understand whether you're a farmer or a pearl merchant or a baker or a gardener, it doesn't make any difference. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is for you. And it just leaked out in all of Jesus' teachings. There's a prayer. One time people came to Jesus and said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And he gave them a model prayer <clears throat> that if you come from a Catholic background or a more Orthodox background, and it, there are, there's a lot of churches that fit into this, there's a prayer that is often quoted called the Our Father Prayer. Okay? Jesus' model prayer. I just put the very beginning of it up here on the screen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next phrase? Yeah. Your kingdom come, or if you learned it as a kid, thy kingdom come, right? Yeah. The kingdom was in virtually everything that Jesus taught. Now, here's the great caveat. 
the people that he talked to assumed that the kingdom of Jesus was like every other kingdom on this earth. Believe it or not, they assumed that Jesus would be much more like Putin than Jesus. That he was going to set up an earthly kingdom and he was going to go out and conquer all the kingdoms of the world and he was going to vanquish all the leaders of those kingdoms and he was going to set up his, his eternal kingdom in the city of Jerusalem and he was going to rule the world with an iron fist. So why did the Jews want that? Because when you're on the good side of that kind of ruler, you get spoiled. You get fabulously rich. And you can do about anything you want and never be held accountable. We've seen that in history, have we not? Over and over and over and over again. And when Jesus said, I'm going to set up this kingdom and repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or is at hand or is coming soon. And when Jesus taught them to pray, your kingdom come, everybody had this picture of a powerful ruler on a throne in some headquarters city and ruling the world. But one day, on the next to the last day of Jesus' life, after he allowed himself to be arrested by Pilate, the governor of Israel, he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate says to him, are you a king? Now, by the way, if a Roman governor asks if you're a king, you don't say yes and live to tell about it. Okay? And he's trying to get Jesus to confess to something that he could actually kill him for. You know what Jesus' answer was? If you ever wondered if Jesus was diplomatic, he was. He said, Pilate, is that something you're saying or did someone else tell you that? He didn't directly answer. And then he added this, which is so important for you and me to understand. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Wow. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. <coughs> this is the first time that Jesus clearly lays out that his kingdom is not like any other kingdom. Now, he's been hinting at it, but this is the first time he directly says it. If Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, but it's from another place, does that not beg a really important question? It does to me. It begs this question. So what is the territory of the kingdom of Jesus? 
if he is a king, and if he is the ultimate king, and he's the ultimate king of heaven and earth, and he came to earth to set up his eternal kingdom, well, by golly, Jesus, where do you rule? That's a fair question. And no one is better qualified to answer that question than Jesus himself. And this is how he said it one day. He said, the kingdom of God is where? Oh, the kingdom of God, the place that Jesus rules. You can't go get an atlas or a globe or a map and point to the kingdom of Jesus because it's not a physical kingdom. He straight up said, my kingdom is not of this world. What Jesus wants you and me to know is this. The territory of the kingdom of Jesus now is the realm of human hearts. Now, let's pause for just a minute. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus comes again and he creates the new heavens and the new earth, he's going to rule in the new heavens and the new earth with a benevolent reign that is just going to be the best thing you could ever imagine. He will have a physical territory then. But for now, his kingdom is from a different place. And he rules in the hearts of people. So what happens when Jesus rules and is allowed to actually reign in our lives. Well, again, let's turn to Jesus because this is how Jesus describes it. Anyone who drinks the water I give. And that would be a wonderful study to go back and look at this context. But basically the water he's talking about is the life that he gives to us when we choose to become his followers and are born again. And if you don't know what born again is, I want to encourage you to go back and watch the teaching from last week. It's a very clear delineation of what it means to be born again. So he says, if you drink the water I give, you will what? Never thirst again. Not ever. Right. The water I give will be an artesian spring. You know what an artesian spring is? When you drill a well and you're hoping to hit water down there somewhere, if it's an artesian well, when you hit the water, it begins gushing out of the ground. And now you have to find a way to harness all that power and all that goodness. You don't have to put a pump down there and suck it out. It comes out. Jesus says, when you let me rule in your life, you don't have to suck the goodness out of me in order to get it. How's it going to come? It's going to gush into your life. What a great picture. He goes on to say, and it will gush fountains of what? Endless life. And he said, it will be an artesian spring within. The kingdom of God is in you. Now, one of Jesus' closest followers, a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul, 
experienced this on a daily basis. And he said this, there's this amazing thing that happens when, when Jesus begins to rule and reign in us. He begins to touch every area of our life and it creates an aura or an aroma. Now, you and I are familiar with this. I'll tell you one thing that it's kind of funny, but it's not funny, but you know it's true. Some people brighten the room by entering it. Other people brighten it by leaving. (laughs) Right? We all know that's true. What is it? They don't even have to say a word. Because we all have this thing about us that's an aura. It's a culture. It's a personal culture. And Paul talked about the personal culture that happens in the life of people who allow Jesus to rule and reign in their hearts. And they end up with this artesian spring that just bubbles over. Notice how Paul describes it as he wrote, In the Messiah, in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ. And the part in yellow is what I want us to get. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance of whom? Of Jesus. (coughs) Wouldn't it be amazing if everyone who claimed to be a Christian that you and I know had that sort of aroma in their life? Yeah, we all can. That's what Jesus wants to create in us. Now, I said we were going to come back to the illustration of the lump of dough. So let's go back and read that illustration. That's what we want to close with today. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in, thank you, in three measures of flour, it permeated how much of it? Every part of the dough. So here's the goal that Jesus is laying out for us, and you can see it up here. The goal is to have the flavor of Jesus in every bite of our lives. How's that going to happen? Well, I have three different loaves of bread up here. I'm assuming they're all pretty good. This is very typical of the Bay Area. This is a round loaf of sourdough bread, right? Anybody here like sourdough? Of course. We're from the Bay Area. We all do, all right? This is a baguette. Most of us probably like baguettes too, especially if we're having spaghetti or some wonderful Italian dish. This is a regular loaf of bread. Okay? But you know the amazing thing about all three of these loaves of bread? They're all made with the same basic ingredients. Did you know that? That all basic bread is made out of flour, water, and some sort of leavening agent. 
and by varying the amount of flour or the ratio of flour to water or water to flour or how much leaven is put in it or what kind, like this is a sourdough leavening and the other two are not. <clears throat> but all bread basically is those three ingredients. I believe Jesus chose this illustration because he wanted us to learn a number of things. And before I get into what they might be, I just want to say this. I wonder how many different kinds of bread you could make with flour, water, and yeast. Evidently, a ton of them. Because there's all kinds out there. And you know what? <clears throat> when you put three ingredients in the hands of a creative God, He takes those same three ingredients and creates all the people in the world. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's how God designed it. And each of those three ingredients actually corresponds pretty well to a portion of how we're made. And let's take a look at that before we move on. The first is a human body. That would be more like the flour in the loaf of bread. Okay? Second, we're given a human spirit. Jesus already talked about our human spirit has the ability to gush like a spring of water, right? Right. So it might refer to that image of God that's put in us at birth. And then last of all, the leaven would be like a divine presence that actually makes the whole thing rise and taste beautiful and have the right texture. Now there's a process to this, and it's logical. The human body and the human spirit <coughs> are given when we're born. Yeah, the Bible clearly says that when we are born, we have, we're given a human body, and we're given this human spirit that's made in the image of God. But we learned last week that that part of us that's made in the image of God lies largely dormant until we are born again and the Holy Spirit brings to life that image of God and we are able to live, as Jesus talked about, with fullness of life. And so the process is the body and the human spirit are given at birth the divine presence is given when we are born again. But if you've ever baked bread, there's a proofing process you have to take that dough through. Am I right? And if you don't take it through the proofing process, you're going to cut it with a sawzall. Okay? It's going to be hard as a rock and heavy as a brick. Because there are optimal conditions that you have to put that dough in in order for it to proof and rise. 65 to 68 degrees in a humid environment is considered optimal for bread dough to rise. Did you know that when God gives you the Spirit, there are optimal conditions that you can put yourself in that will enable the Holy Spirit 
to be activated within you like yeast in a lump of dough. And the idea is that that yeast would permeate the whole lump of dough. That's your life. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, is actually in you. So there, I'm just, there are many, but I'm going to give you four today as we close. And the first one is this. If you want the Spirit of God to really bring you alive, it's important for you to intentionally cultivate the presence of Jesus in your life. A good friend of mine uses this phrase often. Jesus is a gentleman. He never goes anywhere he's not invited. So some of us get up every morning and invite Jesus into our world. But I have found in my life, I have to invite him more often than that. Because what Jesus actually wants for me to do is to invite him into every circumstance that comes in my life during that day. Some days I'm really good at this, and other days... hmm. Some days when I'm driving in my car and somebody pulls out in front of me and runs a a stop sign because they really didn't want to stop and they just wanted to get in front of me. Some days when I invite Jesus into that situation, I can handle that with grace. And without a horn, and without even saying anything in the car. Now, I've progressed enough in my faith that I no longer ever give anyone the one finger salute. That's good for me, right? But there are times when it's like, you have to be kidding me. Right? We have that stuff. Jesus waits to be invited into every circumstance that comes into our life. And those who intentionally cultivate the presence of Jesus end up with a lump of dough that rises much greater, much faster, and much more beautifully than those of us who sort of take that for granted. Fair enough? That makes sense to everybody? Let's look at the second proofing condition. Trials. Everybody's favorite, right? No, we hate them. But we all got them. The interesting thing about trials is they become a wedge. And if we respond to them well, the wedge actually moves us closer to Jesus. But if we ever let the trial come between us and Jesus, it wedges us apart. And you can see the two responses up there. The top one, the wedge has come between us and Jesus. And when this happens, we tend to ask these questions. You know, I've been following Jesus for a long time, and this is the best he's got for me. Where's God? I've been praying about this. doesn't seem to me like God showed up at all. We have all had that response. That's when the trial gets between us and God. 
But I've had so many Christian people say to me, (coughs) during a time of great trial, Pastor, I cannot imagine what I would be doing right now if I didn't have Jesus. Huh? The wedge is moving them closer. Okay, so if you're going through a trial today and a tough period of your life, maybe the best thing you could decide out of this teaching is I'm going to go home and I'm going to move the wedge from between Jesus and me and I'm going to put it outside of me and I'm going to let it move me closer to Him. That'd be a great next step for you. There's a third proofing condition and here it is. Intentionally fostering our spiritual growth through community. In this church, small groups are a giant thing, okay? Um, In about a month, we're going to be launching our fall small group session, and I know that we're looking uh, for potentially five new small group leaders. So if you would like to help facilitate a small group and invite, you know, eight to ten people to come and you can take a journey in life together. Uh, My wife and I are part of a small group that Oh my goodness, we got every kind of a person in there you can imagine. Uh, and, and age groups, multiple age groups, and so forth. But, oh my goodness, it is phenomenal what it does for us and for the other people in the group. So, uh, it's one of the great ways that you can actually take your lump, the lump of dough of your life, and put it in a setting where it can grow and flourish. And the fourth one is really what we're all talking about (coughs) today. Intentionally purifying our hearts through selfless service. I could spend the whole morning talking about that. There's something about selflessly serving other people that tests your own motives. Have you noticed that? And if you don't like what you see, the answer is not to quit serving. The answer is serve until you can get your motives right. Okay? Yeah. And when we serve, and when we serve in a specific way, and here's the last verse I want to leave you with. Peter writes and says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to what? Serve one another. So I said at the beginning, we have about 70 open volunteer positions. I have been praying for many days now that God will move in and among the people of our church to fill all 70 of those empty slots and even a few more. Okay? Um, I don't say that purely and simply because our ministries need people to serve. I want you to hear this. I say that because it's not until you selflessly serve that you can fully experience the kingdom of Jesus in your life. For Jesus himself said, in this world, The rulers lorded over their subjects. But it will not be like that in my kingdom. Because 
whoever wants to be the greatest in my kingdom must learn to become the servant of everyone. I know that's not logical, but I do know it works. And then Jesus went on to illustrate. He said, for even I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So I want to say this to those of you who come all the time. Well, first of all, I want to say this to those of you who are here for the first time, okay? I'm not up here asking you to serve, okay? You have a bigger decision to make. This seemed like a healthy church. This seemed like the Spirit of God is in this place. And if you choose to become part of our church, then, of course, you'll have opportunities to serve. But for those of us who come here often, I want us to consider serving in areas that we don't currently serve in. And if you're not actually serving inside our church, then Jesus says, hey, come on, get on board. Let's do this together. We have six different kiosks set up out in the lobby. If you take this piece of paper, it's got four different areas of ministry here, one here and one on the back. They're all different areas where there are opportunities for you to serve. I want to encourage you to go out and explore, talk to the people in the kiosks. Find your place. That's the name of the series, The Kingdom of Jesus our place. Find your place in the kingdom of Jesus and then let's do this together. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.